The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Starship is capable of doing that. It's capable of, of, of getting, getting a million tons to the surface of Mars and creating a self-sustaining city. Remember when there was almost a myth around Elon Musk, the richest person on the planet, a visionary with plans for interplanetary migration. But now, prospective jurors at his securities fraud trial have called him a delusional narcissist and an idiot. Following a bizarre 2022, Musk has been dethroned after losing more than $200 billion dollars and he's facing losing billions more at a trial where Tesla shareholders are accusing him of lying in those infamous tweets four and a half years ago about a plan to take the electric car maker private with funding secured. Joining me is Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. What do the investors have to prove in this trial? They have already proven some things in this trial. So the judge in this case has already found that the tweets from 2018 were false and misleading and either Mr. Musk knew or he should have known that they were false or misleading. And that's often a big chunk of a securities fraud lawsuit. But it's not the only thing that you have to show. And sort of the two or three biggest issues remaining are, first, was this tweet material? Was the extent of the falsity here material to an investor? Would it have substantially changed how they would have acted had different, more accurate words have been used? A second issue is going to be whether Mr. Musk intended to deceive the market. And a third and somewhat related issue is whether the false tweet, if it did you know, deceive people, did it cause them to suffer a loss? And so these are all things that the various class members and the class as a whole are going to have to prove. Mr. Musk's team has you know, really kind of come out of the box pretty strong on the materiality point. And their claim is really that, hey, listen, uh, this particular defendant's personality is such that two things are true. One, he kind of shoots from the hip and he does it in a bunch of different ways and everyone knows it. And two, he has lots of people out there that are just so infatuated with him that they will try to take cues from, you know, slight facial motions and what color shirt he's wearing. And, and they respond to kind of everything. And so the defense in this case, I think, is probably going to make a concession that, yes, he misspoke in this case, that, you know, even though he had tweeted this idea that he was going to take Tesla private and he had funding secured. He didn't really have funding secured. But there were conversations going on, and they were sort of getting towards maybe having secure funding. And I think the defense is going to argue, look, if he had tweeted that, if you could fit that into a tweet, which is another thing, the market still would have moved exactly the same way it did. So the argument I think that they're going to make is that, yes, this was factually a stretch. He didn't have funding secured. But even if he had sort of said the same thing, so many people sort of believe that, uh, you know, Mr. Musk can move mountains and bend gravity, that the stock price would have moved in exactly the same way that it did. 
and therefore this wasn't material and therefore it didn't cause people to suffer a loss. And so my sense just from the way that the, the current case is laying out and from what I picked up from what was going on in court yesterday, that's going to be a big part of the defense. The, the, the plaintiffs in this case are going to say, no, no, it really matters. This word secured sent out all kinds of alarm bells for everyone, and that was much more definitive than I'm exploring options, even when uttered or tweeted by Mr. Musk. And so there's going to be kind of a big issue that this jury is going to have to decide about whether a reasonable investor, if provided with an accurate tweet as to what was going on, uh, would have acted any different and whether the market would have acted any different. The jurors have seen a different Musk in recent months. And so is that visionary thing going to still work with a jury? Oh, he's special. Yeah, it's an interesting question about whether it's going to work. I think you could make an argument on either side. On the one hand, you know, the last few months, let's just be realistic, have not been terribly kind to Mr. Musk. And I think the bloom is a little bit off the rose as to the extent to which he's this visionary, flawless manager who sees into the future and makes the future happen today. He, he still has some of those characteristics, but you know, I think the much more public and erratic nature of his behavior over the last few months has definitely sort of taken the veneer off of that impression. But the other thing that it has done that's probably worth noting is that it is also exposed that, yeah, he does shoot from the hip a lot, that he does, and, and people sort of get this, that he sort of is almost thinking out loud when he is tweeting and speaking and writing. And that's how he's always been. And people have always known that about him as well. So if the market had a view of him as being a profit for the next 10 years, but they also knew that he's a guy that engages in sort of a modern James Joycean stream of consciousness on his tweets, then, you know, the defense could still say, yeah, that's the whole idea. People, you know, at the time had this view, and maybe some of them still do, that he is a seer, and therefore even the casual throw-off stream of consciousness lines are going to be enough to move those people in the market, and those are enough people to move the market itself. So I think there's a sense in which his now exposed sort of short-sighted flaws and unforced errors as a manager can hurt him, but could also sort of help him in the sense that the defense is going to say, yeah, this is a guy that just kind of thinks out loud. It goes straight from synapse to mouth, and everyone has known that. And at the time, in 2018, he could do no wrong, and therefore even a slight hint that this is what he was thinking about, which would have been accurate, would have moved the market like crazy as well. In picking the jury, it just showed how many people are now viewing Musk, particularly from that area. One person called him a delusional narcissist, another one an idiot. The cars are beautiful, but Mr. Musk is an idiot. It seems certainly different from prior jurors. That does seem different from prior jurors, and there definitely is a is a sense, you know, probably not just in the Bay Area, it may even be a little bit more national. The, the emperor actually hasn't been wearing clothes, or at least as many clothes, mm-hmm. this entire time. And so, you know, on some level, the Musk team has, you know, even tried to move the case out of California, claiming he can't get, can't get a fair trial in the Bay Area. Uh, that was denied by the judge, I think probably appropriately so. But the jury is is going to be a little bit more hostile to Mr. Musk. And I think part of what's going to be really critical is to make sure that the jury stays on track, certainly from the Musk team's perspective, that the jury stays on track on what the ingredients are 
of a securities fraud lawsuit. And it turns out one of the ingredients for a successful securities fraud lawsuit is not this person is unlikable or detestable, right? And so, you know, I think if the judge basically says, okay, people on the jury, let's stick to the elements of this offense, it becomes kind of an interesting question about how someone who's iconoclastic as Mr. Musk then interfaces with the market and what reasonable people might have known at the time. The idea that funding is secured, it's it's a pretty strong form of a statement. And I think there was, you know, almost a sense that, look, he must have the funding somewhere if, if he's saying something like that. And so I, that's going to be where things sort of shake down. And, and I think part of what may be going to be a challenge for the jury and a challenge for the judge is to say, you also need to transport yourself back to 2018 to what reasonable market participants would have thought and whether they would have changed their response based on the precise wording used in the tweet or the existence of the tweet. So the defense seemed to be arguing that this was a split-second decision to tweet, but also that it was true that Musk's intention to take Tesla private was true. Now, is it his intention or his ability to take Tesla private when he says funding secured? It certainly seems to have been his intention, but I think I think what the defense is probably going to do, and it's not a crazy theory, is to say, okay, tell you what, let's let's consider an alternative set of facts. And they're going to be pretty close to these. And let's ask whether you can find a securities fraud lawsuit in that. And let's suppose this alternative set of facts is there are two tweets sent in August 2018 that say, I'm thinking about taking Tesla private at $420 a share. And I'm in, you know, pretty serious negotiations with a significant provider of capital to help back. Right. Now, that set of tweets, my sense, would be 100% correct. And they didn't really omit anything um, as of the time that they are made. Uh, and then, you know, he comes back in and says, no, that everything is off. I think in that alternative hypothetical, it would be very, very hard to find a securities fraud violation because, you know, they're really, his cards were on the table. He had aspirations. The aspirations didn't work out. And I think what the defense is going to probably do is say, look, if you looked at that type of an alternative hypothetical, how would the market have moved, if at all? Would it have been pretty much the same thing that we saw? Like everyone got excited, oh, Elon's going to be able to do this. It's his intent. But of course, he can, you know, make magic happen. And the market would have done exactly what it was about to do. You know, members of the plaintiff class would have sold or, you know, unwound their positions exactly the same way that they would have. If that is all true, if the jury finds that that's true, then the defense will have drawn a line between this hypothetical that didn't happen, but pretty clearly wouldn't have big securities fraud implications and the stuff that actually did. And my guess is they're going to try to tease that analogy as far as they can. From the plaintiff's perspective, they're going to have to beat back on that. They're going to have to say, look, words matter, and particularly these types of words matter. And the fact that, you know, this is just something that he casually let out, well, that's on him. That's what security fraud law is in part supposed to do. It's supposed to provide a deterrent for um, a poorly thought out half-truths that people out there in the market would reasonably rely on. And so, you know, I think there really will be kind of this odd fight about just how far away this case was from the, you know, no liability at all hypothetical versus the sort of a diabolical, full-blown, detailed untruth. The other thing that's interesting about this case is that 
there's a case that it's in litigation. You know, there's so much of securities fraud litigation, particularly securities fraud class actions. They just don't go to the finish line. They just don't go into litigation. And so the handwriting seems to be on the wall as to how the case likely to come out. And the parties then figure out some sort of a settlement and everyone walks away. And that's clearly not happened in this case. You know, Mr. Musk himself, as we can tell from his seemingly continual appearance in various courtrooms, state and federal around the country, is willing to take things to the finish line often, or at least right up to the very edge. And so it's kind of an interesting phenomenon because the number of data points that we have for what happens in a securities fraud trial is surprisingly small. Most of them is, you know, we know an awful lot what happens as we're going through the processes leading up to a trial. And then, of course, there's a settlement and then some new lawsuit will be filed tomorrow. So there is kind of an interesting aspect of this case that even securities fraud litigators are kind of sitting back and saying, oh, I guess they are going to trial. You know, this will be at least entertaining and probably interesting to see how it plays out. How important is Musk's testimony? I think it will be important for a couple of different purposes. I think one is that he's going to want to be able to tell what was happening from his perspective, right? And it does seem that there is a story there about him, you know, sort of reaching out to the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund that had indicated that they were interested in backing this sort of transaction. And I think there was even an attempt to subpoena their appearance in court. That seems to have gone away, at least momentarily, But I think that he's going to have to provide some information about what was going through his head and where he thought that process was because his intent is going to matter. So his ability to come off both with an accurate recollection of what went on and a credibility that, yeah, I really kind of honestly thought we were going to be able to make this happen, but negotiations far enough along probably shouldn't have used the word secured. But, you know, from what I knew at the time, the funding seemed like it was pretty solidly lined up. And, you know, we, of course, had to paper it and I had to lawyer it up and the Saudis had to lawyer it up, but it seemed like it was going to happen. And then they pulled the rug out from under me. And that's when I had to send the corrective tweet. So I think his testimony is actually going to be pretty critical for just sort of making people understand what was going through his mind and doing so in a credible way. If he can't tell a credible story, if he doesn't do it in a way that the jury can kind of get their head inside, it's going to be problematic from his perspective because it's then going to be much harder for him to make the claim, yeah, this was just an improvident choice of words. And I really had no intent to manipulate or perpetrate a fraud on the market. So he's testified several times at trials, and I believe he's won them all. But can lawyers get under his skin if they know which buttons to push? Yeah, I think lawyers can get under his skin. In fact, uh, lawyers have gotten under his skin, including in prior securities litigation involving some of these same facts, right? That you know he, he reached a settlement with the SEC but, you know, was, you know, clearly troubled by, you know, government lawyers and by some accounts even went on vendettas against some of them. So I think it is possible for people to get under his skin. It's interesting kind of where Musk sits right now, because in some ways, the the fact that it has been a, a tough couple of months on him may cause him to have a little bit more equanimity in, in how he sort of goes about interacting with, with lawyers as well. But, it, it you know, I, I think this is in some ways, you know, part of what the sort of strategy is going on in the back channels here with 
the plaintiff's lawyer saying, yeah, I just want to get him on the stand and, and get him ruffled. And uh, the defense attorney say, no, you've got a very simple story. Stick to your story. Go back to your story. That's the story here. And if that's the story that the jury believes, then, you know, we can defend uh, this lawsuit. But absolutely, when you get someone on the stand and they're being cross-examined, part of the whole idea is to try to ruffle their feathers and uh, get them to start monologuing in ways that just weren't planned. How would they determine damages here? It's a kind of a complex process because there's a whole bunch of different people that are part of this class action. So typically what, what's going to happen is, you know, when, when, a, when a case settles, things go to a claim administrator. There could be a large claim administrator after a, a, a damages judgment that then has to figure out, you know, who is going to be part of what, you know, chunk of the damages. If we get to a damages um, phase of this trial then the the plaintiffs are then going to have to sort of say, okay, we've got one group of plaintiffs that, um, you know, they, they, you know, right after the, the, the announcement, they went out and bought a bunch of Tesla stock and then it immediately sunk and, and, and they bought and sold during the period of the fraud. And here's the difference. And we're going to, we've totaled that up across this class of investors. There's another class of investors, including the main plaintiff, as far as I can tell, who has a slightly more complicated situation because he had actually had a lot of derivatives and options in in uh, Tesla. And there were, were quite a few investors that had this that, you know, were basically making long-term bets on the viability of Tesla, you know, five or 10 years down the road. And those bets paid off to the extent that Tesla kept growing well in excess of $420. So as soon as like a $420, um, you know, Go private is 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 announced or sort of announced. Uh, those folks, just their ownership of, of of those claims, it kind of loses a bunch of its you know right hand side tail, and they lose they lose a lot of value. And and you know the name plaintiff said I just dumped you know I had to I had to dump my my position, and so they're going to have to you know figure out the plaintiffs are going to have to figure out assuming they can get a liability judgment how to then apportion damages claims within the class, how many people are in each group and when they bought, when they sold, and what that gap was and how much of that gap was due to this idiosyncratic movement in Tesla stock price versus just the market going haywire on a given day. And so um, if they get to this point of then you know, trying to, to lay out damages, it uh, could involve a, a fairly detailed picking apart of the, of the plaintiff class uh, probably with some financial experts who are sort of coming in and trying to say, okay, here's how I value the loss due to the fraud versus just market risk that was going on. Which side do you think has the more difficult case to make out? Well, you know, in theory, the plaintiffs have to prove their case. And so all the presumptions go against the plaintiffs. And so as a general matter, the deck is stacked against the plaintiffs. Here, we're not in quite that position because we've already had a finding by the judge that this was a false and misleading statement and must knew or should have known that it was false and misleading, which is actually you know, part of the way to a successful lawsuit. So where with the ordinary case, you know, you plaintiffs realize that it's a long shot. They only have to win part of the battle from here on in because they've already won part of it. So this case is a little bit more of kind of a evenly matched case. And there is, you know, sort of a, a sense in which the, the oddity of this case and really the oddity of, you know, so many of these other recent lawsuits that involve Mr. Musk in particular is that 
you know, he is such an iconoclast and such a non-comparable personality. It's, it's kind of hard to figure out how to how to fit his square peg into the round holes that most of these areas of law have. And in this case, as opposed to the Delaware case, we're actually adding a jury on top of that. And so there's, there's going to be a lot of how do we understand and socialize the jury. You know, personally, I, I think the, the defense still has a reasonable shot if they could make a convincing case that Elon Musk, you know, sneezing or scratching his elbow would move markets in 2018 that the gap between his actual tweets and these much more non-actionable hypothetical tweets was pretty small. That's a real argument, and I think it's going to get a lot of airtime this week. Uh, but, you know, given that the plaintiffs have already crossed over some of the critical hurdles that usually trips up other plaintiffs, you know, I think they're shooting kind of an, an even money gamble at this stage, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Has he won all the lawsuits he testified in? Yeah, it depends how you add them up. It is true that when he has testified thus far, he has won the lawsuits that he's been in. But, you know, in some cases, you know, the Twitter case, they just settled at the 11th hour. And I think it looked pretty clear that that things were not looking good for him. Um, He ended up reaching a settlement with the SEC regarding the same set of actions. And so that kind of never went into trial. There's a there's a trial that he had involving the acquisition of Solar City in which he testified and he won, but that case is currently on appeal to the Delaware Supreme Court. And so it's conceivable that could be reversed and and then we're right back in the same in the same boat. So yeah, I think it's probably I think it is fair to say that he's at least the sort of corporate and securities, big corporate and securities, Tesla related cases, he's won all the big ones that he's that he's testified in. But but he settled others, um, and you know, and some of them still haven't played out. We don't have a we don't have a judgment um, from uh, Chancellor McCormick yet in the in the executive compensation case. Solar City could get reversed. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen here. So the roulette wheel is still spinning on the effect of Elon Musk testifying live in court. In my mind, you know, Musk does seem to have a lot in common with. Donald Trump as far as litigating everything to the nth degree and not settling. You can't not make the parallel comparisons, right? Because I think they are both people who sort of feel like, yeah, that those rules don't really quite apply to me. And I'm going to thumb my nose at them and kind of be stunned when I find out in certain circumstances, oh my gosh, they do apply to me. Because a lot of times, you know, it turns out eh, for some weird reason, I got away with that strategy and then I'm going to do it again and again and again. And that's a personality trait that, 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 that both of these guys have in common. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. AI art generators have enjoyed explosive growth in recent months. And now, a first-of-its-kind copyright infringement class action suit over using copyrighted images to train artificial intelligence tools. 
A group of artists has filed a potential class action against billion-dollar company Stability AI, along with two other art generator makers, Midjourney and DeviantArt. The claim is that the generators downloaded and used billions of copyrighted images without obtaining the consent of or compensating any of the artists. These lawsuits could limit the number of images the tools ingest for training, ultimately affecting the content they produce. Joining me is Cal Raustiala, a professor at UCLA Law School. Will you explain the general issue with the use of AI in these cases? Sure. So many artists are concerned by the fact that AI technologies train themselves on large data sets of photographs, paintings, music, etc. And in the process of doing that, they, they consume millions and millions of different copyrighted content pieces, artwork, songs, etc. And so the concern of many artists is in doing that, they are, one, copying their work when they're training on it. But two, I think at a deeper level, those AIs are then producing incredibly interesting creative work that challenge the existing work in the marketplace. There are several of these lawsuits going on? Yeah, there's a number of lawsuits. And in some ways, some of these lawsuits reflect even earlier lawsuits. Like there was one quite a while ago around Google Books. And so this isn't an entirely new phenomenon. But, you know, all of the chatbot GPT, these other more recent AI technologies uh, have really led to a lot of alarm on the part of content creators. Yeah, one of the lawyers in a blog post said that since the November lawsuit, they've heard from people all over the world, especially writers, artists, programmers, and other creators who are concerned about AI systems being trained on vast amounts of copyrighted work with no consent, no credit, and no compensation. Is there any other way to train these AI systems? You know, I'm not a technologist, I'm a lawyer, but my understanding is no, that this is how they, in essence, learn. And, you know, it raises a complicated issue because, of course, you can imagine you or I going through a museum and looking at paintings and, in fact, sitting and studying them and then going home and painting. Totally legal, as long as we're not actually copying a specific element of a specific painting. We're just getting inspiration. We're learning about painting. These are doing that same process, but on a massive scale. And in doing it, they're actually copying the work to create a kind of training data set. So it's both the scale and the particular way it's done that opens up the possibility of these lawsuits. I'm not going to say that they're going to prevail, but it at least opens the door. A spokesperson for Stability AI said that the company takes these matters seriously and that anyone that believes that this isn't fair use does not understand the technology and misunderstands the law. So it seems like their defense will be fair use. Yes, fair use is appears to be the primary defense that will be mounted. Of course, we'll see as things proceed. The concept of fair use is longstanding, and it sort of reflects the idea that I think we all recognize that no one creates artwork, songs, whatever the content is, out of nothing. You create it out of a series of things that already exist, that you know of, that you've witnessed, that you've thought about, that you've consumed, and that you often can incorporate aspects into your own work. Now, copyright tries to strike a balance, and fair use is meant to provide that kind of balance. It wasn't planned or intended to deal with things like AI because nobody thought about this 
centuries ago. So this poses some real novel questions, but the idea of fair use is not a new one, and it is certainly applicable in theory to what the AI programs do. This is copying on a broad scale, copying the works of others on a broad scale. Is that a hard argument for fair use? Yes and no. I think what what's different here is that most of these AI training data sets, they're copying in a notional way. And to some way, this goes back to the very dawn of the kind of computer age, where when you would download something, uh, even just to look at it momentarily, your computer would make a little copy for a moment. I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing <laughs> the actual technology, sure. but the point is there's there's often kind of notional copying that's taking place just with regard to digital items. And so that's what's happening here. The AIs are not copying and then selling. It's not like Napster, let's say 20 years ago, when music was being downloaded, copied, and then distributed out. That was a very clear cut kind of situation. This is different. The copying is there to train on, and then they're producing something totally different. Might be in the style, might look vaguely similar, but they're not actually copying specific elements into some artwork they're then, let's say, selling. So it's quite different. And so it raises a question about whether this is something that fits comfortably within fair use as we've understood it, or maybe requires an elaboration of the idea of fair use for this new technology. So for example, some people have said, look, we need to kind of understand this as fair learning, that to learn, sometimes you need to copy. Again, it's like momentary, notional. It's not, it's not the traditional copying, like you write a story and I copy your story and pass it off as mine. It's not that. Something different reflects the 21st century. That might be a question for Congress. The Supreme Court case back in 2021, Google v. Oracle, which I think was a landmark case involving computer code, does that have any relevance here? It does because it's one of them. There are not a ton of cases from the Supreme Court on fair use. And so, yes, it absolutely does. I'll just note that there's another case before the court right now involving fair use and Andy Warhol and a photograph that raises a lot of the same kinds of issues, not in an AI context, but again, what is permitted, what degree of copying or transformation, which is often a big part of the understanding of fair use, is the use of the prior work then transformed in a way that changes the meaning and therefore is permissible. The court is going to opine on that as well in the coming months. And that will also give us some guidance. So, yes, this is an evolving area of law, and it's one where the Supreme Court has a lot to say. But traditionally, the court has not taken on a lot of fair use cases. So it's unusual for there to be two cases in just a couple of years. As far as fair use, let's say the court hands down some guidelines in, in the Warhol case. Aren't fair use cases really fact-specific? Are guidelines going to be definitive? No, that's a fair question. They are very fact-specific. You know, that said, the courts have in the past, the Supreme Court has talked about, for example, transformation. This idea that if you paint something and then I incorporate that into a photograph or a painting myself that references it in a certain way, but I transform it so that the meaning is very different, maybe it's satirical now, that that is an acceptable form of fair use. And so they've given us what lawyers would call standards for evaluating that rather than hard and fast rules, because yes, every case is distinct. It's a really complicated area. And, you know, I understand the concerns that artists have. Uh, I'm sympathetic to that. On the other hand, 
you can't really imagine an, a future for AI technology if this form of copying that's being employed in, in training AIs is suddenly subject to copyright because there are literally millions and millions and millions of saved images. You don't know who actually took those images. You couldn't even begin to find the person. So there's so many problems with that, uh, imposing that on it. So these are really hard cases, and I, I want to emphasize there is no easy solution here. Two of the attorneys who represent the artists suing Stability AI, Joseph Severi and Michael Butterick, say it's possible to create a licensing model similar to the music world's transition from file-sharing sites like Napster to platforms such as Spotify and iTunes that license content legally and that would allow artists and AI to peacefully coexist. Is that a big ask? I think it's possible. It works pretty well in music. It's not perfect. One thing I should say is we are producing work right now at DC. And if it's fixed in a tangible medium of expression and it has some originality, it's copyrighted. And so every day you are producing copyrighted work, whether you know it or not. So I think people don't always appreciate that. So yes, in theory, if you're like the typical artist who's actually making a song in a studio and trying to sell it, yeah, that works well. If you're just the ordinary person taking a photograph, as we all do every day on our phones, maybe uploading them to a website or something that others can see, that's really different. So I'm not convinced that that solution works on a kind of mass scale, but we'll see. You know, creative people will obviously work hard to make it viable. And if it can work, then yeah, that is a solution we can we can imagine. And it's, it's worked fairly well for the music world. I understand that the Copyright and Trademark Office won't register a work created solely by AI, but... It will register works created with assistance from AI. Does that have any impact on what we've been talking about? You know, that's sort of the other end of the process. So can an AI be an author? Who can be an author? And yeah, it's generally been the position in the United States that only sort of human beings are authors. So there's a famous case involving a monkey taking a selfie. And, you know, is the monkey an author? Is an AI an author? And the answer has generally been no, only a human being can be an author. Now, is that the right answer is one question. Some countries take a slightly different view. Second question is, what's the line between that and using some technology for assistance? You're recording our interview. I might use Photoshop. What's the line? That's not so easy to discern. So, you know, I don't have a great answer for you because no one really knows where to strike that balance. And it's obviously changing because the technology is always changing. Thanks for being on the show. That's Professor Cal Rostiella of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, like, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.